the future look good. You were happily married and ranked with the greatest managers of all time. But a year later, it was all swept away. A rival league tempted your players with large salaries. Facing financial ruin, you sold your stars. It was that or bankruptcy. Eddie Collins went first. Sold to the Chicago White Sox. Jack Berry sold to the Boston Red Sox. Home run Baker sold to the Yankees. Your famous infield gone, the A's plunged to the bottom of the American League. With the athletics in last place, empty seats at the stadium. The fans called you a team wrecker. You didn't argue. Quietly, you began to rebuild. In the process, you made mistakes. A rookie pitcher named Babe Ruth was offered for sale. Cheap. You were short of cash and turned him down. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hi there, friends. Uh, Your pal Tim here, uh, reporting for duty, as always, each and every week here on Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming by. If you're new to the proceedings, uh, well, where the hell you been? Uh, Step right up and uh, take a seat, why don't you? And if you're a return visitor, well, let's hope uh, we can uh, keep your attention once again uh, this week as we get into some uh, a fascinating story. This is, uh, you know, we we love to dig deep uh, in our little realm here of forgotten sports. And uh, as as you know, those have been longtime listeners to this program, uh, we'll know that this is uh, a focus on uh, teams and leagues that are no longer with us uh, or previously domiciled even. A great example this week is uh, the uh, Philadelphia A's of uh, Connie Mack uh, back in the day. Uh, They were in Philadelphia for many, many years prior to the Phillies uh, and uh, legendary uh, on a whole bunch of different levels. Of course, they are now what is uh, known as the Oakland A's. We think they're going to stay in Oakland, a new stadium, uh, lots of renderings floating about there and some really cool ones at that. Uh, but obviously, uh, through a, a quick number of years in Kansas City, uh, the original uh, uh, location of this A's franchise, the Athletics, was Philadelphia. And uh, that little clip there that uh, introduced uh, this week's uh, proceedings uh, gives you a little bit of sense of uh, of the uh, outsized influence and uh, of this Connie Mack guy, right? Uh, very much uh, uh, well known. Uh, well-regarded, obviously a baseball uh, Hall of Famer from the earliest of times uh, and uh, foundational uh, baseball in general as it matured from somewhat ragtag in the uh, the turn of the 19th, excuse me, the 20th century uh, into modern day baseball, just uh, essentially as the 50s dawned and, and things sort of really uh, took took on a whole new uh, a whole new uh, set of uh, circumstances for the sport of baseball. But uh, back in the 19 teens, uh, the Philadelphia Athletics were uh, uh, quite something. I mean, you had um, uh, essentially a team that was a dynasty, the first dynasty of the A's, really, um, kind of starting around uh, 1902 or so, winning a whole bunch of American League pennants uh, and winning the World Series in 1910, 1911, and 1913. Um, yeah, this was a team that was winning over 100 games in 1910 and 1911. 
Uh, and they were just one game short of that mark, 99 games in 1914. Um, they had a team known as the $100,000, back when $100,000 was you know, a significant amount, infield. I guess you could equate that to a million or $10 million today. The $100,000 infield, you had uh, people like Stuffy McGinnons and Eddie Collins and Jack Barry at shortstop and Frank Home Run Baker. That's a great nickname for there ever was one. Uh, pitchers Eddie Plank and and uh, Chief Bender, who we've talked about uh, on this uh show in previous episodes. Um, Rube Waddell was in the mix. I mean, you know, Scheib Park, where all this was happening. Uh, Philadelphia was absolutely a, a dynastic uh, in the earlier part of the teens. Uh, but uh, when they lost the 1914 uh, World Series to the Miracle Braves, another uh, topic that we've discussed in previous episodes here, the uh, the Boston Braves back then, um, 1914 is an interesting time because that's obviously when the Federal League uh, was uh, uh, challenging uh, what existed of the American League and the National League. Lots of different challenges and stuff. And, and the beginning of the end, I guess, of this first dynasty uh, was well underway. Um, however, that is not the focus of this story. Our guest this week, Alan Abel, uh, has written a, a fascinating book that fits and sits within uh, this period of time of the Philadelphia Athletics. The book is called the Short Life of Huey McClune, uh, The True Story of Baseball, Magic, and Murder. And as we get into unwinding this topic, and, and Alan will do uh, a magnificent job of doing so when we get this interview underway, as you will soon hear, um, this uh, is not only the era, uh, but it's also a reflection of what's going on in baseball generally, not just of the A's, but of baseball generally. Huey McClune as you will find out in a few moments, was the mascot for the Philadelphia A's around this time, the middle, the middle part of, um, uh, of the 1910s. Uh, you uh, had to remember that mascots uh, were quite the thing. They were a sort, a sort of a combination of, uh, I guess, sort of a, 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 a voodoo doll and, and, and sort of a lucky charm, I guess. Uh, and and these mascots during this era and Philadelphia a prime among them were, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, these were hunchback uh, uh, kids, really, or dwarves, or, or 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 whatever the terminology was at the time. But they were, um, I, it, let's put it this way: they were socially not uh, acceptable, I guess, what you call today. But back in the day, they were kind of looked upon as being sort of an essential component to uh, to that of, of a baseball team. Every every baseball team, the Yankees, and all of, uh, they all had some aspect of, of what they would call a lucky charmer or a mascot in the form of a person. Generally, somebody who uh, had a disability, frankly, what we know, know today is that, is that hunchbacks, for some strange reason, uh, were kind of uh, in vogue uh, for those kinds of mascots. And Huey McLoon was was one of those uh, characters. We'll get into some of the, the story, but this is a, a kid, a, an older uh, teenager that, uh, you know, grew up like a lot of uh, American kids at the time, loved baseball, and uh, frankly felt his deformity would naturally fit uh, the qualifications, if you can believe it, for being a mascot. Yeah, this was a regular thing back then. Um, and it, it, Huey McLoon's uh, story, which gets even more bizarre and interesting as we get on, because he goes on to be a numbers runner and and runs around with the mob, and he becomes a, a well known and and loved figure in Philadelphia, and and then sort of uh, gets in sort of this uh, 
uh, this crazy sort of a street gang kind of thing going on in Philadelphia, which is also uh, reminiscent of the times and, and bootlegging and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, fans of the of the athletics and of, of early baseball will uh, probably know a guy named Louis Van Zelst, uh, who was the again, I could call him a bat boy, call him a mascot, a good luck charm. Um, I, you know, I, he was the mascot for the Philadelphia Athletics from 1910 to 1914, around this time when they were winning everything. Um, in the case of Van Zelst, he was a hunchback as well, known as a hunchback. I guess that was the terminology back then. Um, you know, not self-conscious about it, but, you know, it's an, a born of an illness that he, that's, that, uh, he sustained at, at an early age. I think it was the age of eight or nine or so. And, you know, this to, to show you how just commonplace this was, I mean, Van Zelst and, and other mascots out there in baseball, I mean, they would encourage the players to, you know, do things like rub, rub their, rub his hump you know, for good luck, that kind of stuff. So this is an interesting story uh, and not sort of all warm and fuzzy either, right? This is a an interesting and, and bizarre and, and frankly a little, little bit uh, off-putting uh, story about what, the role of these mascots uh, in baseball, um, the, the, the role of a mascot in the Philadelphia A's story, right? So the athletics, uh, uh, you know, not uh, uh, any different than any other uh, thing, but to understand the, the story of of that, uh, the times of of the United States, the times of baseball around this time, um, and the story of one of these uh, interesting characters named Huey McLoon. You will be riveted by this uh, this story, but it is it, it encompasses all of those things uh, and more. And uh, it's a it's a, uh, a an odd but a supremely interesting story. And um, and Alan Abel, uh, who is uh, the White House correspondent for McLean's. Uh, the well-known uh, Canadian publication, uh, and a journalist extraordinaire. I mean, he's been with the Globe and Mail. Uh, he has been uh, a Beijing bureau chief uh, for a number of publications. He's been an on-air, uh, an on-air host and writer for, for things like the CBC and HBO and Discovery. He's a winner of multiple national magazine awards, uh, on and on and on. And um, he's even uh, done quite a bit in the realm of sports writing. This is a great story, a very interesting one. Uh, a tad bit uncomfortable uh, once you understand the dynamics, but uh, all in out um, fascinating nonetheless. And we uh, look forward to presenting it to you in mere moments. Our conversation with Alan Abel as we talk about the short life of Huey McLoon and, and all of the stuff, whether it's the Philadelphia athletics and Connie Mack and baseball at the time of the, the 1910s, all of that coming up in uh, just a few moments time. Quickly, let us get a uh, promotional uh uh, message out to you uh, before we do that. Uh, and our friends at 417 Helmets uh, fits that bill this week. Yes, 417 Helmets. It's 417helmets.com. It's collectible helmets and more. Our pal Judd Lasher in uh, suburban St. Louis, I believe it is. Yeah. Uh, promo code for you there at 417helmets.com is good seats and uh, 10% off all of your purchases. And yeah, I know a a miniature uh, mini helmet. Uh, uh, a seller is probably not the most uh, aligned with a uh, a story this week about uh, uh, early uh, 20th century baseball. But um, what you're going to find at 417 Helmets, if you consider yourself a football fan or frankly want a custom made one, uh, either for, uh, you know, uh, another sport. Uh, Judd is, uh, uh, you know, uh, no stranger uh, to mixing and matching uh, logos and, and labels 
uh, from other sports onto these beautiful uh, mini helmets. They're they're basically made of the same material as all these, uh, 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 you know, official helmets that uh, athletes wear in the collegiate and the pro ranks. Uh, and it's just fascinating. If you enjoy uh, reminiscing about uh, teams uh, in former football leagues that used to be, uh, especially 417helmets.com is the place for you to indulge uh, that uh, that interest and uh, and commemorate a bunch of them. Uh, and there's other stuff there too, but the collectible helmets, I mean, you will be fascinated by uh, the the width and the breadth of the of the offerings available as well as the ability to custom uh, make uh, ones to your liking and specifications, whether they be of old teams or of new teams or other things that you may have in mind that you'd like to see uh, ensconced onto uh, a football mini helmet. Again, it's 417helmets.com. My little promo thing is not doing it nearly as much justice as it deserves, but check them out. 417helmets.com. Promo code is good seats. That's 10% off all of your purchases. I guarantee you're going to find something that's of interest for sure if you're a sports fan. And uh, our thanks to our pal Judd uh, and our thanks to you for checking them out. Uh, if you purchase something, give it us a few shekels of uh, referral love. We appreciate that. And now on to the uh, uh, the uh, discussion at hand. Here is our um, our spotlight conversation this week. Here it is, Alan Abel, as we talk about uh, a fascinating story about mascots, the, the Philadelphia A's, old-time baseball. It's the short life of Huey McClune. It's a great story, a fascinating story, a really interesting story. Please sit back and enjoy. Let's um, maybe sort of set this all up. Why don't you uh, regale our audience a bit with um, uh, with your general background first, and then we'll kind of skate into how this story uh, kind of sort of hit your radar and, and, and sort of commanded you, if you will, to uh, to, to write a write a book about it. But you, you're a journalist, a writer uh, by trade, correct? Uh, just to just a cub reporter, only fifty years. Doing uh, where uh, various okay. things, especially so I to, yeah. when, I, when I was in high school in Brooklyn, all intelligent boys were told you have to be a scientist so we can beat the Russians to the moon. So I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, dear old RPI in upstate New York, and majored in astrophysics. But by the time I was a sophomore, we had beaten the Russians to the moon. So the bottom fell out of that market, as did my grades. But it was so hard there that 15 out of 100 on a final was a strong C. So I didn't understand astrophysics, but I understood baseball and I understood hockey. My father had been a season ticket holder from the Ranger, for the Rangers and the Americans as soon as those teams were formed in the mid-1920s in the new Madison Square Garden. So I knew hockey, volunteered to be the student manager of the hockey team, the only Division I sport at RPI, and wound up as the broadcaster, refereed the practices, did everything on the rink except drive the Zamboni because I didn't know how to drive. But knew hockey when I graduated in 1971, got a job at the local paper in Troy, New York, the Troy Record, for $48 a week. Got a job reading scores on the radio station there for $10 a week, not a minute, not a day, but 10 bucks a week, which was paradise to me. And broadcast the RPI hockey games on radio and did everything that a kid from Brooklyn would ever dream of doing. And at the Troy Record... They one day assigned all of us co-reporters who basically were just taking bowling scores over the phone and covering CYO boxing. Why don't you write a column? And the first column I ever wrote won the New York State AP Award, and they said, maybe maybe this, this child knows how to do this. So 
started writing a sports column in Troy, then moved to the Albany Times Union. I was married to a Canadian at that point, and when the Blue Jays were founded at the end of 1976, she said, nobody in Toronto knows anything about baseball. Certainly not the way a kid from Brooklyn does, and urged me to apply there, so I was hired by the Toronto Globe and Mail, covering the Jays their first six years, covering the Olympics and hockey. As their columnist, did that through 1983, then I became their bureau chief in Beijing, learned a little Mandarin. Uh, went from there to television foreign correspondent at CBC for about 15 years. In the Tiananmen Square, Nelson Mandela, Amazon is burning, Berlin Wall era. And then uh, tried to quit in 2002, tried, said this is enough, 35 years is enough. Became a National Park Ranger in Arizona and Utah. Was lured back to Toronto for work. Uh, wound up being asked to move to Washington to cover the Obama-McCain election. And spent the next 12 years covering Obama and Trump in the White House. So sports, China, foreign affairs, uh, a lot of science writing in the meantime. Probably written about 500 documentaries and hosted many for Discovery, HBO, Learning Channel, back when it was still a channel about learning, and basically been behind a keyboard since January of 1972, and behind a microphone since the fall of 71. Well, and of course, the most important part of all that was the park ranger experience that you that you that you definitely not, slipped not in park there. Park ranger, not park national park ranger. National park ranger. National. And don't don't ask me if I wore the Smokey the Bear hat because Smokey the Bear is a forest ranger. Smokey, Smokey works for the Department of Agriculture. National Park Rangers work for the Department of the Interior. That's an important distinction. <laughs> don't ever call a National Park Ranger a park ranger. And don't ever, don't ever park say that... And, right, and don't ever say that this show is not educational, because it's certainly... Uh, we always uh, strive to be uh, uh, unearthing uh, pieces of information that are important to your, uh, your daily lives. All right, well, let me... All right, so... So enough of that. Well, no, I, this is that's I mean, you know, that's that's a stellar journalistic and, and, and uh, uh, storytelling uh, career. It certainly uh, set you up very well for uh, telling stories. And this is certainly one of them. Um, I, I'm really curious, though, how how this particular one sort of uh, hits your radar. Um, uh, is this from uh, having covered baseball and then uh, impossibly uh, to avoid uh, the history of it along the way, or were there, was there some other sort of element that that drew you into what ostensibly is, you know, it's important for our audience to understand, is uh, part of the Philadelphia A's uh, story, obviously the Oakland A's of today, but um, it's embedded in that. But I'm assuming that baseball was the, the hook, but, but I could be completely wrong. Well, when I was... Uh reporting and producing documentaries at CBC Television in Toronto. One of the editors was a young man from Cleveland named Bob Schroeder, who had been a journalist at Kent State. In fact, he was the editor of the student newspaper when the Kent State shootings occurred on May 4th, 1970. He was a big uh, Indians fan. He knew baseball. We would talk about baseball and baseball history. And he introduced me to the whole concept of the hunchback mascots, which I having spent a life in baseball, having been to hundreds if not thousands of games, having covered 15 World Series, etc., etc., had never heard of that about 100 years ago and going back into the 1880s, many if not most teams 
had a disabled child as a bat boy and Lucky Charm. And Bob knew about this young man named Louis Van Zelst, who had been the mascot of Connie Max A's from 1910 through 1914, and during which time they won four pennants and three World Series, and that they would rub this young man's hump between his shoulders for luck on the way to the plate. And in fact, he would carve out a hole with his cleats near home plate and chirp out, rub my hump, better rub my hump for a hit this time, which is all empirically true. I don't, I've never dealt in fiction. I've never dealt in unverifiable fact as a journalist, certainly not in fake news. And that's an intriguing development. And so Bob and I set out to maybe write a play, maybe a radio play, some sort of a dramatization of Lewis and the 1911 World Series when, as you probably know, Charles Victory Faust was the mascot of the New York Giants, this uh, German-speaking Kansas farmer who, as Christy Matthewson wrote, blew in, caked with dust. And uh, Faust had been told by a fortune teller in Wichita that it was his destiny to pitch the New York Giants to a world championship. And in 1911, this all really happened. Uh, Faust joined the team. He was kept on sort of as a running joke by the Giants players, but they won something like 80 out of 90 when he was on the bench. McGraw let him pitch a couple of innings in the last two games of the season with the pennant clinched. So, in fact, the prophecy had come true. Faust was a New York Giant. And so in the World Series, little Lewis, who'd fallen off a wagon when he was eight and developed terrible spinal deformity, I guess you could call it, if that word's allowed. Um, Lewis is in the dugout for the A's. Faust is in the dugout, or in fact, standing just outside the foul line, pretending to throw every pitch of the game. So the two mascots collide in the 1911 World Series. So as I was working on with Bob on trying to tell the story of Van Zelst, I heard about a man in the Philadelphia suburbs named Perry Desmond out in Downingtown. And he had researched this era also and quite uh, charitably, generously, and, and just wonderfully, he sent me, when I was working as a national park ranger in Arizona, a thick packet of information about not only Van Zelst, but he sent me a newspaper, the Bulletin, front page, August 9th, 1928. Front page, second column headline, Hugh McClune slain by three gunmen, two companions shot. Well, okay, it's prohibition. There's gangland violence all over. Who is Hugh McClune? Now, here's the subhead. Hunchback mascot of athletics murdered with sawed-off guns. Try that again. Hunchback mascot of athletics murdered with sawed-off guns. That's a pretty good story. Would you agree? Well, hell, there's a lot uh, to unpack there, right? Just that yeah. sentence alone has... Okay, unpack, has unpack, unpack it right word back. for word. Unpack it word for word. Hunchback? What are hunchbacks doing in baseball? Mascot? We know what a mascot is. The Fanatic's a mascot, right? Gritty's a mascot. We know what a mascot is. The San Diego Chicken, my old friend Ted Giannullis, he was a mascot. What's a mascot? Athletics, we know who they are. Murdered, well, there's always an intriguing hook, murdered, with sawed-off guns, which implies a special sort of twisted malice, doesn't it? Why would a hunchback be a mascot? Why would the athletics need a mascot? Why would the athletics mascot who was a hunchback be murdered? Why would he be murdered with sawed-off guns? 
So there's, uh, for any any writer or reporter or journalist, there's a pretty interesting uh, starting gun. And I became intrigued with McClune, and the more you looked up McClune, the less there was to know about him. He appears in Norman Mack's great 2100-word trilogy of the Connie Mack biography in about three paragraphs. And Norman was very kind to me and sent me information. So I contrived this story in, in off hours. Well, it would be nice to find a story. To find out what is there known about McClune. And one of my old magazine and newspaper bosses in Toronto uh, started a publishing company about two years ago. And he said, what do you got? And I said, well, how about, uh, how about the short life of Huey McClune? Short being a play on his stature, of course, four feet tall. And he said, okay, go do it. So I went to do it. And the more I researched and the more a gentleman in the Philadelphia suburbs named Ed Morton helped me to research, the less there was to find out. There was almost nothing about McClune, except that his death was front page news. 15,000 people lined up in South Philly to see his body. His coffin was carried by two judges, a Pennsylvania, a University of Pennsylvania track coach, and a couple of gangsters. Mickey Duffy, who was the fictionalized central character in Boardwalk Empire, paid for his funeral. And yet McClune also had been an informant for the chief of police in Philadelphia while running a speakeasy. So the story is, its a, I don't want to claim this is Nobel Prize literature, but I will claim this is one of the most fascinating American lives conceivable. Three-year-old boy falls off a seesaw. His family is too poor to have it treated. At the age of 13, he weighs 54 pounds. The hunchback mascot of the A's, whom he has been watching from the grandstand as a child because his mother, grandmother lives right across the street from Shive Park. He dies after winning four pennants and three World Series. The A's go a year without a hunchback mascot and finish last. Meanwhile, in 1915, the Phillies adopt a hunchback mascot and win their only pennant last half century. So clearly, Mac needs a hunchback. Young McClune is a hunchback. He summons the nerve to climb the steps to Connie Mack's office in July 1916, but he's too small and weak to open the door. But eventually he gets inside and Mack hires him. So this fatherless, crippled, underweight, little Irish boy winds up as the mascot of the A's, and they finish last three years in their grow. They are, of course, the famous... 1916 Pathetics, with the worst record of the 20th century. And he leads them, if that's the right verb, to three last-place finishes, and then leaves the team in 1918 after umpire George Moriarty mocks him in a published poem. Drifts to the shipyards, where he is with Shoeless Joe, and the shipyard team is the mascot of the, the work-or-fight boys, many major leaguers among them. Uh, winds up in the boxing world, first as the mascot for Jack Dempsey and Benny Leonard. Then the boxing world in 1919 merges with the world of prohibition, of bootleggers, winds up as a mascot of bootleggers. They set him up with a speakeasy. At the same time, he's working as a clerk in the magistrate's office and as an, un as an official secret informant for the Philadelphia Police Department. 
interesting life for a kid who did nothing to earn that, I guess, but fall off a seesaw. Well, actually, before we go further than that, right? So I, go ahead. I, I, I want to unpack. Lead, lead me down any one of those roads you want. Well, no, this is. I'm already beyond intrigued, right? So uh, let, let's let's unpack. I think two sort of major, I think, tributaries to, to all this, right? Which I think helps maybe set the narrative a little bit more clearly for the. I would argue everybody listening is is uninitiated for all, most of this, right? Because nobody was around at the time, so for sure. Um, number one is sort of this. Um, uh, by modern standards, by sure, and frankly, by the standards at that time, too, I, I, I would imagine this sort of uh, troubling uh, trend slash uh, 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 process of trying to find these mascots that are, I don't know, it just seems like they're being used. Okay, here we go. Right. But, and, the, and the other one at the, at the same time is 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 the A's and, and Mac in the midst of that, like why a little bit about them and why they felt like they had to be part of all of that sort of dynamic. Because those are two okay. strange Here we mysteries go. to me. Okay, this is, this is chapters and chapters. Why hunchback mascots? Right? That's, that's, a, that's a pretty easy question to ask. Why would anyone consider hunchback to be lucky? Well, let's go back to Rigoletto. Let's go back to Quasimodo. Let's go back to the ancient Egyptian hunchback god of Bess. There's always been a fascination with small little people, right? You, you'd agree with that? There is simply something deeply human about a relationship, a curiosity, a repulsion um, of very, very small people. Remember Nelson De La Rosa with the, 19, with the 2004 Red Sox? Remember they had the shortest man in the world, Dominican actor. Three feet tall, Nelson De La Rosa, uh, well, in the Red Sox clubhouse. Well, Eddie Goodell, right? Uh, the, of the, course. Uh, right, uh, uh, you know, for, in the sort of uh, uh, the circus yeah. era with of the Browns, of with Bill Beck, right? But yeah, but yeah. no one thought of Eddie Goodell as lucky. No one thought of him as a talisman. No one thought of him by the by the early 1950s as a totem, as having some numinous quality. If you read what was written about Louis Van Zelst. Uh, the body of a cripple with the heart of a saint and the soul of a martyr. Um, but anyway, let's go back further. So relationship with hunchbacks, you look at the paintings, the 16th century paintings of, by Diego Velasquez of the royal dwarves of the court of Spain. There's always been an association of specialness, uh, being outré in a word, not sharing the same emotions. I don't know if the kings of Spain saw their dwarves as lucky, but they certainly saw them as mascots in a way. So sports has had mascots a long time. The army mule, the navy goat, the Yale bulldog, they predate this baseball's age of magic. Um, baseball would you, players... Would you, would, you, would you say that, that as, as you sort of go further, would you say that this is sort of done... I guess I'm I'm interested in the tone and the intent, right? Is this lovingly? Is this uh, uh, quote unquote giving back to the community and no, sharing story, or is this no, is this a no, truly no, being used kind of situation? I don't think I don't think there was a disabled community in Philadelphia in 1902. I don't think there was. Uh, if you read what uh, the Department of Public Health said, it encouraged uh, people to stop having children if they themselves had disabilities. Uh, it was eugenics much more than than community. In the, in the public forum, anyway, at that point. But if you go back to the early years of baseball, 
there always were mascots, except for two things. The word had not yet entered the English language, and they weren't human. There were lucky pennies. There were blind calves. There were goats. The Chicago, were they the Chicago Whales or the Players League? They had a lucky goose that would walk up to home plate and, I guess, lay a golden egg. Um, there had always been lucky charms, and I'm sure that predates baseball, predates organized sport, probably predates any form of, of urban society. There always had been lucky charms. And eventually, I guess the colleges beginning the trend that there were specific lucky charms associated with specific institutions. Uh, baseball didn't invent the four-leaf clover, didn't invent the, horse, uh, the horseshoe, didn't invent the rabbit's foot, but called on those things because baseball, as the rules evolved in the mid to late 19th century, remember when baseball started, the pitcher served the ball underhand to encourage the batter to hit it. And every rule change seemed to make it more difficult to hit the ball safely. Uh, this is long before the pitcher's mound, but reducing the number of strikes, starting to throw overhand, the invention of the curveball, fences, uh, trimming of the grass that made erratic hops less, less likely, fielders starting to wear gloves, the catcher moving up behind the batter, foul balls considered strikes. Look at every rule change, as far as I know them, through the second half of the 19th century, and it just got harder and harder and harder to, to get a hit. And the harder it got, I would guess the more batters search for any edge, any intervention, anything that they thought would break a hoodoo or a jinx, whether it was Bill Lang of, of Chicago having a four-legged chicken that he would encourage to cluck before he came to bat, or a calf, a blind calf that they had led around the bases before the game. All of that existed. So two things already exist. The, the propensity of ballplayers to feel jinxed and to need something to break the jinx. And I'm sure you know the history of the empty barrels, the, the, her, the, the team wagons passing a hearse on the way to the ballpark, the superstitions about a cross-eyed woman in the stands. So all of that pre-exists. Uh, the human relationship with with little people, with dwarves, with, with midgets, as they'd be called, with General Tom Thumb in the, in the P.T. Barnum Circus. All that pre-exists. Then in the early 1880s, a Frenchman writes an opéra comique, a comic opera, called La Mascotte. And it's about the daughter of a turkey farmer in southern France who is magically lucky. And in the local folk parlance, the word for such a person is a mascot in English. And so the word had never existed in the English vocabulary. If you find a dictionary from before 1880, you will not find the word mascot. And this play comes to New York, and it's a sensation, and it introduces the concept that a human being can, in fact, be a mascot. A human being can be a lucky silver dollar. A human being can be a horseshoe or a rabbit's foot. And so teams instantly, instantly start adopting, taking these old traditions of you need something to break the jinx and there's something magical or special about really little people. And by 1889, almost every team that I read of has either a child, there was a boy in Chicago named Joy Majero, uh, Joe Majero, three feet tall, was a mascot for the Two teams then, I guess, in the American Association and the National League. Um, 
There's a little boy named Willie Hahn with the White Stockings who goes to Detroit uh, when they're in a battle for a pennant in the 1880s, leading the marching, leading the marchers from the station in Detroit to play the Wolverines. But Chicago loses because the Wolverines have a mascot who was a boy who was born with a full set of teeth, supposedly. And so what we would consider now the detestable era of circus freaks, of dog-faced boys and alligator women and anyone with any kind of a special deformity being considered as magic or as an attraction, somehow the three things morph together. The comic opera that designates the possibility that a human being can be a lucky mascot, the difficulty of hitting a ball, a round ball with a round bat, and the magic of little people, or the perceived magic of little people, which was universal. And they all come together in people like Louis Van Zelst and Huey McClune and Eddie Bennett of the Yankees, who was with them all through Babe Ruth's career. The first man whose hand Ruth shook after most of his home runs was the hunchback, Eddie Bennett. Uh, it's Raul Norton of the Phillies, the hunchback helping them win the pennant in 1915. It is a long, long, long list of little people who are seen as having some sort of magical propensity, who, I guess, in a phrase I would use in the book, through the, that the crucible of their own suffering rendered them somehow a guardian against ill fortune. And, and, this, and, this was, and this was generally accepted? or well, was who, it? who would have argued not to accept it? Remember, most American cities then had ugly laws. If you had lost a leg or an arm or been blinded or burned in the Spanish-American War, in many cities you were banned by law from begging on the streets or even hanging out on the streets. And if you look at the history of ugly laws, people like Van Zelst in many places who had an extreme deformity would not have been allowed out in public. So I don't know who... There was then, there was no disabled community that I've heard of then. There was, I don't think there was anyone to say this is wrong and cruel. And certainly the mascots themselves, at least in the public, public print, seemed to revel in their role and the press about them emphasized over and over and over. Look at clippings about Van Zelst when, when the A's won the pennant in 1910 and beat the Cubs in the World Series as big underdogs. Luckiest lad in the country. Most envied boy in President Taft's dominions. So I don't think there was any community at that point of advocacy for people with a disability to say, wait a minute, this is wrong. And then you have the flip side of this, which was that many, many teams, if they couldn't acquire a suitable hunchback would take an African-American boy off the street and they'd rub his head for luck. If you read Pitching in a Pinch, a Christy Matthewson bestseller of 1912, he says, the luckiest thing in the world is to rub a black boy's head on the way to the plate unless there's a hunchback. And a hunchback is an even better jinx killer. And that's why the A's with Van Zelst defeated us with crazy Charlie Faust in the 1911 World Series. So I think other than 
rather than a universal cry that this is perverse and cruel, that back then it was seen as efficacious, it was seen as charitable in a way, and it was seen as the ultimate stroke of luck for a boy to be so unlucky as to be so crippled that he was rendered into a magical dwarf. All right, let's let's fold in then Connie Mack and the A's then as part okay. of the story and and okay. aligning with that uh, that base that you're that you just laid down there, which is fascinating in and of itself and and uh, just short of incredulous, right? But no, don't be incredulous because it's all true. It's all true. This is this isn't fiction. As my friend Mike Farber, who wrote for the Bergen Record when you were probably growing up in northern New Jersey wrote a lovely blurb for me on the cover of the book. It says, this could be a great work of fiction. The damnedest thing is it's all fact. So it's all fact. And um, it, could be fiction. it could be fictionalized, but it doesn't have to be. So when Connie Mack's last surviving child, Ruth, Ruth Mack Clark, I think she was 89, I went to visit her in the Phoenix suburbs back when I was a national park ranger. And we're just starting to think about this story. And I told her about Van Zelst, and I told her about Huey McClune, and about rubbing their humps for luck, and about how her father, the, the devout Catholic, uh, obviously not only subscribed to this, but encouraged it, because he paid these, these young men. He carried them on the team. And Ruth Mack Clark, uh, Connie's daughter, said, no, 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 that's a superstition, and ours is a religion. We're Roman Catholics. We have a religion. That's, no, Dad would never do anything like that. But yet when the A's won the 1910 World Series, defeating Tinker and Evers and Chance and Three Finger Brown, and they had a parade from Broad Street Station down Broad Street in Philadelphia. Who led the parade? Mac holding hands with the little mascot, Louis Van Zelsen. So whether Mac in his heart of hearts believed in magic or believed that these young men actually could break a jinx, or whether he was charitable, fatherly, remember he was the father of, of six or seven, uh, whether he was just being kindly to these young men, certainly he tolerated them. Certainly he didn't tell his batters, don't treat this boy like some sort of circus freak. Hard to know what was in Mac's heart of hearts, but he was, uh, everything I've read, a kindly and generous person outward, outside of the ballpark. He was a a pretty ruthless businessman. He was uh, held on tight to his to his nickels, but in society he was a very kind and generous and decent and, and beloved man who did a lot of good works for a lot of people and sought no, sought no attention for them. So, did Mac believe that rubbing the hump? of a Van Zelst or a McClune on the way to home plate would guarantee a hit. I think he was too much of a realist for that. But he certainly was not going to discourage anything that his players perceived as breaking the jinx. And the word jinx appears everywhere in the reports of those games at the time. Uh, the day that Huey McClune was hired, the A's were already about 15 games deep in last place in, in early July. Little McClune shows up at the ballpark, and the headline the next morning is, Max Midget Mascot Puts Kibosh on the Jinx. Max Midget Mascot Puts Kibosh on the Jinx. So obviously the newspaper men went along with it. They had seen the A's despondent 
over the death of a beloved little Van, as they called Van Zelst. Mac was not about to try to extinguish any flicker of hope that his players might have that they could do better than they were. McLoon joins the team. They lose the first game with a doubleheader. They actually win the second game. There was poetry in the papers as far as New York. The Macs have collected a game. Uh, there was revelry that this worst already called the Pathetics. By May, they were being called the Pathetics. That they win a game of a doubleheader. They beat the St. Louis Browns in the second game. Bullet Joe Bush on the mound. And uh, they, they win one of the next 30. But McClune had been their mascot. We've got a hunchback. We can break the jinx. So did Mac believe in it? I think he'd believe in anything he thought could win the A's a ball game. And clearly, the players believed it. The great Matthewson, the great idol of his time, Matthewson believed in it. Matthewson writes in his book that more and more college men are coming into the game. Matthewson had been to Bucknell. And uh, Matthewson said, in fact, it's the educated guys who seem to believe in this more than anybody else. So I don't sense any movement whatever. I've never read a word in any letter to an editor during that era that said, why are the athletics carrying a disabled child with them uh, when he should be under medical care or something? I don't think there is a community. I don't think, uh, I have not read anything. Maybe your listeners know better than I do, but I haven't read anything from that period, from 1910 to 1920, that said it's wrong that professional athletes look to disabled children or parade them or exhibit them. So, so Van Zelst obviously had caused quite a uh, a, 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 a promotional boom. I guess a boon, I guess he was, for, for, was for a param, he was a paramount celebrity. Um, when Home Run Baker won two games in the 1911 series with with home runs. Baker's bat was exhibited at a department store over the winter in central, Center City, Philadelphia, and Van Zelst was part of the attraction. Meet Louis Van Zelst, guardian of the bat, and he'll be there with the bat that he handed to Frank Baker, who hit the great home runs. Oh. He was known to everyone. Now, of course, this is pre-television. It's pre-radio. There are probably a dozen competing newspapers in Philly and Camden and the suburbs. And the player's belief in Van Zelst, he obviously, you know, I met Van Zelst's uh, kid brother when the kid brother was 101. Uh, he obviously was a beloved child. If, if you want to think of a comparison, I don't want to make, I don't want to offend anyone or anything. You know who Joey Moss was, the late Joey Moss? Do not. Uh, Wayne Gretzky's first serious girlfriend was a young woman named Vicki Moss, a, a singer. And they were together for several years when Wayne first came to Edmonton. And uh, Vicki had a brother named Joey who had Down syndrome. And Wayne convinced the Oilers to take on Joey Moss uh, as the towel boy, stick boy, clubhouse attendant and he served in that capacity until he passed away a few months ago for more than 30 years and joey moss became an emblem of courage a truly beloved figure in the city of edmonton 
universally known. He would sing O Canada at CFL football games. He was hailed. He was a spokesperson. He was truly loved by the players. But I don't think, and so that's that's the 1990s and 2000s, until just recently. Joey Moss would be the closest I could think of as a modern equivalent of the way the A's players, and probably many baseball players, saw these unfortunate young men. Moss was truly loved. And I'm sure that Van Zelst was truly loved. I have no doubt that 14 year old, 58 pound, four foot tall, Hughie McClune was loved by these men. Um, but no one would have thought, I don't think they would. I don't think that Gretzky or Messier or, or men like that would have thought that Joey Moss was somehow lucky that he could bring them good luck, that he was their, he was not their mascot. He worked in the clubhouse. He worked in the room. Or, 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 think of them, or think of them as being used, so to speak, right? Or, or uh, you know, uh, taken advantage of, right? Because there's obviously that thread there. And, and it seems to me that, you know, your modern uh, uh, example seems a little bit more uh, understanding, uh, uh, bigger picture, uh, more communities, uh, uh, perhaps. Of course, and, there, and, and of course, there is a community to advocate for for persons with Down syndrome. There is a tremendously politically powerful and engaged, involved, and passionate community for the rights of the disabled. That didn't exist in 1910. Uh, did General Tom Thumb feel he was being used by P.T. Barnum? Uh, did his wife, Lavinia Warren, did she think, and she was, what, two feet eight inches, fully grown, did she think that she was being used, or did she think, hey, I got a pretty good gig here? Um, in a way, and again, I, I never intend to in, to offend anyone. Think of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Think about a young person who's suffering a terrible illness, and that person wishes to be the bat boy for the Cubs for a day at Wrigley Field. Do you see how that child would be seen when he or she goes out on the field that day? Right? Can you see? Can you see that? Make-A-Wish Foundation. These boys were promoted as if they had permanently been granted the ultimate wish. And there are so many stories that I've found about other kids like, hey, why is Eddie Bennett sitting there with Babe Ruth? Why does Eddie Bennett get to shake Babe Ruth's hand? And he gets paid for it. Come on. What did he do? Boy, he, got, he fell off a wagon. I got a hump. And the, the mythology grows to the point where most envied kid in the country luckiest boy in the land. And I don't know if Van Zelst or McClune or Norton or any of these kids thought of themselves as lucky. They were in terrible pain. They, they couldn't play ball themselves, but they were publicized as lucky charms and themselves seen as envied. Do you think young people, let's say, let's say someone from the Make-A-Wish Foundation is granted to be the Cubs' bat boy for a day. I don't think that many people in the stands would look at that child as being somehow lucky or fortunate or say, how come that kid gets to be on the field, uh, gets Disneyland all to himself for an hour? You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. A, I, big, big, a big shift 
and how we perceive people with disabilities uh, and how we perceive the exploitation of children and what we perceive as lucky. I'm sure there are things that the 2021 Cubs individually all think of as lucky. You know, lucky undershirt, put the right cleat on always before the left cleat, don't step on the foul line, always step on third base running out to the outfield. You know what I mean? Well, baseball certainly has had its own superstitions, right? And I'm much more, uh, you know, a much more uh, basic and 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 less human kind of uh, realm. But let me, so let me ask you this: so so just to juxtapose McClune um, with his pre- predecessor, right? Because uh, lucky is not something that the A's were when McClune was in this role, right now. Lucky they were detestable. Yeah, and arguably through no fault of his own, right? I mean, this is just sort of a continuation or a seek for continuation of this generally accepted superstitious slash promotional understanding that, that, you know, a a mascot of this kind of ilk is something we probably need to continue to have. Now, there are probably some... Some other reasons, and we don't have to go, go too deep into them, like the Federal League coming in the midst of, the, uh, of all of this and, and the parsimoniousness of, 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 uh, of Mac as, as a owner and manager of this team and all that kind of stuff. But maybe you can kind of just put McClune kind of front and center as he lucks into, I guess, this sort of magical job and, and filling this gap of this much beloved, his much beloved predecessor. Um, Sort of set up uh, what's going on around this time, what's happening with the A's, and what's happening with McClune as part of this. Is he being blamed for some of this? Well, if he was anything, lucky wouldn't be the proper adjective. They were a terrible ball club the year before. Remember, Mac has the $100,000 infield has been broken up. And, and Van Zelst was lucky in that he was attached to a great ball club. But I have no doubt that the Washington Senators or the Browns or whoever finished last in those years in the early 1910s also had mascots. Everybody had mascots. The Toronto team in the International League, whatever version that was in those years, had a young black boy they called the Zulu King of Africa. Everybody had a mascot. Um, just as every college football and basketball team still has a mascot, last place teams in Major League Baseball now have mascots. Um, so the idea of having a mascot, I think they understood that not every mascot could finish, could, could win the world series every year. Uh, McClune, interesting the way he's portrayed right from the start, he's portrayed as a street talking kind of Bowery boy. His remarks are always quoted in Argot, like, yeah, you just got to end the bat to them. And then they go up to the plate, and some of them, they want it with the handle, and some of them, them don't. Yet Van Zels was always quoted in flawless Shakespearean English. Uh, so McClune is instantly perceived as a kind of, I don't know, what's the baseball equivalent of a rink rat? He's a wise guy. He is a sharp-talking street kid, which comes from his upbringing. He's not... He doesn't come from a refined home. So almost sounds far, like the antithesis. Sounds like the antithesis of lovable. Well, you can be a wise guy and be lovable too. Um, remember, he's only fifty-eight pounds at the age of fourteen. He uh, 
He goes to school. And when he was eight years old, the Philadelphia Inquirer every year had a contest to find the most popular scholar in the city as voted by your classmates in schools. And the number two runner-up got about 4,000 votes. And Huey Geatons, which was his mother's new husband's last name, Huey Geatons got 30,000 votes. There was something about him that nothing was written about, but he had some sort of charm. Um, you're too young to remember the Bowery Boys movie. But you think no, of the wise. No, that's not true. That's okay, not true. Okay, so you remember Leo Gorsi? Robert Blake was in there, right? Oh, yeah, Robert Blake was in there. He's like the little rascals, you know. He seems to be. I wasn't there in 1916. I don't know, but he's portrayed as a wisecracking, snappy um, street kid. Street kid. He most assuredly as far as I know, does not go to church every Sunday with Connie Mack, which Van Zels did. Van Zels, Connie Mack, and the players made sure that Lewis got to church every Sunday. I found no mention that Huey McClune ever walked into a church, except when he was christened and buried. So, can I read you the poem that, that the umpire Moriarty wrote about McClune? Sure. Okay. This is in 1918, his third last place season with the A's. And the headline is, To the Athletics' Little Mascot by an American League Umpire. I don't know how many umpires now write poetry. Hey, Huey McClune, now you better watch out. I'm three times as mad as a guy with a gout. It didn't take silk in me long to get wise that you were no friend of us umpiring guys. The first thing you know, one of these summer days, there'll be a new mascot at work for the A's. Silk is Silk O'Loughlin, another umpire. Hey, Huey McClune, all that rough stuff must go. I guess you think I'm a vaudeville show. I saw you last week. You were howling with glee because that foul tip nearly busted my knee. If I catch you laughing at me anymore, I'll have to get waivers on you by the score. Hey, Huey McClune, I know all your dislikes. You don't like to hear the A's called out on strikes. For when they go back, you say, well, never mind. What can you expect of an umpire what's blind? Hey, Huey McClune, guess you think yourself smart, a button in, taking the ball player's part. Hey, Huey McClune, I could make you feel blue if I cared to gossip or tattle on you. What Gardner and Perkins told me all about would ruin a mascot if it should leak out. But when there's a girl's name mixed in the affair, it's none of my business, but Huey, beware. Week later, he left the A's. So he's no friend of umpires. You can see this kid... This wise-ass street kid sitting on the bench cursing the umpires. And uh, he was no saint. No one ever said he that in the body of a martyr had been placed the heart of a saint about him. But that doesn't mean he wasn't loved. It doesn't mean they all didn't like him. Hey, Huey, go tell, go tell Silk what you think of him. Uh, uh, Moriarty, he's a bum. Huey, go tell him. And I don't want to distinguish or categorize the various forms of love that exist, but maybe the players did love him. Maybe they loved, Maybe they really liked him. Maybe he, in a way, was like a lot of them. What was the percentage of Irish Americans in Major League Baseball in those years? What was the percentage of people with an eighth-grade education in Major League Baseball? They weren't all Matthewsons from Bucknell. So maybe they saw a kindred spirit, or maybe they just felt sorry for a kid who was 58 pounds at 14 years old. Couple of years in this role. Why does he leave? 
Well, 1918 comes work or fight. Um, baseball is sort of held in suspended animation by the War Department. At first, ball players are exempt from the draft. Remember, Wilson enters the war in April 1917. Baseball struggles on through the 1917 season, not knowing if they're going to be canceled or not. Theaters are left open because so many war bonds are sold at performances, but pool halls are closed and bowling alleys are closed, and they start to debate publicly, sport by sport, what about jockeys, what about tennis players? And at one point, baseball players then become the the, the property under the dominion of their local draft boards in their hometowns. So if you're from Milwaukee and they don't need soldiers, you're okay. But if you're from Chicago and they do, you're going to be drafted. So late in the 1918 season, or mid to late, with it becoming more apparent that ball players are going to have to serve in France over there, the shipyard and industrial leagues sprout up. Players start leaving the ballpark to basically play baseball on the team of some industrial enterprise that's connected to the war effort. And in Philadelphia and Boston, the shipyards have to create a blue water Navy for a country that virtually has no fighting Navy. And so a lot of players, even Ruth signs on supposedly to the shipbuilders league, but Shoeless Joe leads the charge. And, uh, Many, many, many players. Jack Barry from the A's $100,000 infield goes to a shipbuilding team in Boston. And Huey, obviously publicly insulted by umpire Moriarty, and with some of his best friends on the team leaving for the shipyard league in the Philadelphia, in the Navy Yard, appears in the newspapers just about two weeks after this damning poem as the mascot for the Rivet Heaters Club of the Philadelphia Shipyard Athletic League. So it looks like he was uh, increasingly non grata, but his friends on the ball club were leaving also. So it didn't seem like there was any luck to be had. And so he went where his friends went, I think, where the ball players he knew had moved on to, and never came back to baseball because by 1919 he's mascotting fighters already. And uh, in that area, it was not uncommon for each fighter in a match to enter the ring with a hunchback on his shoulder. Wow, so this was beyond baseball. It was beyond baseball. Yeah. Yeah, it was beyond baseball by then. I've got a, a clipping in the book from 1913 of a championship fight in Los Angeles in which one fighter had his own hunchback and the other had to rent one from New York who was sent out by train, and they both entered the ring with their, with their hunchbacks. Uh, so Huey, becoming universally known in Philadelphia, whether the A's were in first place or last place. In fact, when the war started, the A's attendance went up because people, I think, were looking for a distraction, something to do. Uh, they had pretty good crowds through their, those terrible seasons of 16, 17, 18, that they were, they were drawing well. And Mac was always given the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Mac was never vilified. If you imagine the White Sox finishing 40 games behind the next-to-last-place team, there'd be calls for the fire everybody, including the peanut vendor. But back then, no one called for Mac's head. Of course, he part-owned the team, so his head was his own property. But no one said Mac must go. In fact, the 
the columnists and the cartoonists were very sympathetic to Mac. Well, yeah, we we had such a great run, and uh, 15 didn't work out well, and 16, they'll be back in 17, just you see. They'll go from worst to first in 17. Yeah, Connie will, get, Connie will bring them back. So McLoon leaves in 18, gravitates to boxing by 1919 and 20. He's the official mascot for the lightweight champion, Benny Leonard. He's negotiating with Dempsey to be in his corner for his fight with uh, Edouard Champentier in Jersey. Maybe you were there. Uh, and he's moved to the world of boxing. In January 1919, Prohibition comes into effect. Boxing in Philadelphia is controlled by a little guy named Boo Boo Hoff. Hoff is just a poor, struggling boxing manager, while secretly he is the Al Capone of the East Coast, a fact not brought out till Huey is murdered. So he drifts, he finds another world where he's beloved and popular, and you find him in the newspaper clippings by the early 20s going to the pro wrestling matches, sitting between Jack Dempsey and the chief of police. Everyone knows Huey, whether he was, whether he had the heart of a soul of a saint placed in the body of a martyr, apparently not, but he sure was a snappy little wise guy around town. He's, he's everywhere. He's handing out summonses when they raid uh, brothels. He is doing the paperwork when 20 flappers and their boyfriends are taken down in a prohibition party raid. He is at the Ritz-Carlton when the chief of police decides they can't keep arresting the small bootleggers and the small speakeasy owners and the grocers who keep medicinal wine on the back shelf. They've got to go after the big shots, too. McClune is there. Uh, writing down names and taking bottles of gin away from society women. He's testifying in court cases. He is um, holding the hat where lots are drawn in an election. He's everywhere in the city in the early 1920s. And to be anyone to fill in the early 1920s meant, meant bootlegging. So this is very this is as much a now a bootlegging, uh, sorry, a, a, a prohibition story uh, and plenty of movies around that can you can sort of sort of fill in the gaps of sort of the the dynamic there. Um, what, but which side is he on in all this, right? Because it's it, he's it's, on both sides. He's on yeah, both sides. So I, I, as I put in the book, he's like Stuffy McGinnis. He's playing too close to the foul line. So he is a protege of Boo Boo Hoff and his faction of bootleggers. And Hoff was converting something like ten million gallons of industrial alcohol into quote booze at that point. He was a U.S. steel-sized industrial enterprise because it was illegal to produce alcohol for industrial purposes for whatever, what's alcohol used in paint, turpentine. It was legal to produce alcohol as long as it was, quote, denatured, which I think meant adding one drop of iodine in a railroad tanker car's worth of booze. So uh, Philadelphia had always been the most corrupt city in the United States politically, long, long, long before Prohibition. It then gleefully snubs Prohibition. It becomes such an embarrassment when articles in Collier's and the New York Herald and the, the national press goes after Philly, like, how come we can't get a drink but in Philly it's wide open? <laughs> so the mayor brings in a guy, a Marine Lieutenant General, named Smedley Darlington Butler. Butler has won the Medal of Honor twice, and he's refused it both times, saying, I didn't do anything. Butler is a Philadelphia Quaker from one of the oldest families in Pennsylvania. His father calls him the 
So they bring in Butler to clean up Philadelphia or to make a grand show of cleaning up Philadelphia. And the first person Butler hires when he gets to Philly is Huey McClue to be his secret informant, to infiltrate these society parties, to tell him what's going on at street level. It's McClune. So everybody knows this kid. Uh, McClune, when Prohibition comes in, he's only 17 years old. I think he's about 20 or 21 when Smedley, Darlington, Butler takes over. Now, Butler doesn't last long. In fact, one of the Philly papers said that they hired him because they expected him to be honest, but 100% honesty was more than they would have, uh, were seeking. But Butler's term is, is punctuated by two things, dramatically publicized raids on speakeasy. You know those shots you see many times of guys with axes slattering barrels of beer? That, that's what happens then. McClune's right in the middle of that. At the same time, He's running a speakeasy downtown Philly and going to parties with judges, going to booze-soaked parties with the judges who would then try the cases of the men arrested for selling the booze. So it was, uh, it was quite a time, and he was right in the middle of it. Maybe he saw nothing wrong with playing on both sides. There were judges who played on both sides. The chief of detectives, when the inquiry finally happened in the wake of McClune's murder, the chief of detectives is asked, where'd you get that $7,000 that you just put in your bank account? And his answer was, I raised canaries. So Huey wasn't the only one playing both sides of, of the foul line there. But he only spent three years in Major League Baseball. He spent seven and a half years in the world of prohibition, bootlegging, and law enforcement. So his story is not... He becomes famous because of baseball. He becomes famous because he's the A's mascot. He becomes the A's mascot because of this tradition of the lucky hunchback. But in the end, the 15,000 people who line up to see his body the morning after he's shot, or a couple of days after he's shot, uh, they know him from the theater world. They know him from the boxing world. They knew him a decade before from the baseball world. But they just know him. He's just, he's a dapper Dan, they call him. He's a snappy dresser. He's always in a double-breasted pinstripe suit and a fancy hat. He hangs out with everyone from the, from the mayors to the lowliest club fighters. He's a true celebrity. And I guess you could say that he's famous for being famous. Did, did his fame help or ultimately hinder his, let's call it, bootlegging career? Because I could see it playing both ways, right? Where, in some respects, the last thing you want to do is be known, especially if you're playing both sides. But arguably, he wouldn't be maybe in that sort of position of being able to be successful, quote unquote, on and playing with both sides without that sort of notoriety, if you will. Well, we've only discussed a small part of his resume. He was the official assistant of the Pennsylvania State Boxing Commission. He was the deputy sports editor of the Philadelphia Evening Ledger. He was an officially employed clerk of a magistrate named Judge Edward Carney, the dancing judge. Um, so McClune was a city employee. He was a state employee. He was running a speakeasy. He 
was managing fighters. He was not just, he, he graduated from being a mascot of boxers like Dempsey and Leonard and Lou Tendler and uh, Tommy Loughran. He graduated from that to actually managing fighters. And Hoff sent him to California in the summer of 1927 to make matches and to get fighters into the ring. So he legitimately was seen at that point. I had nothing to do with being a numinous, magical, talismanic totem of being a lucky hunchback. It had to do with knowing the fight game, knowing his fighters. So he was a professional boxing manager. He was a clerk of the magistrate's court of Philadelphia. He was the designated informant of Smedley Darlington Butler. He was the deputy something of the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. He was the deputy sports editor of the Philadelphia Public uh, Evening Ledger, all at the same time. So this is someone who everybody knows, who knows everybody in an era when there were just newspapers. Newspapers had tremendous power. Uh, The papers laughed at prohibition. Everybody knew what was going on. And I don't think it was extraordinary for someone to be on both teams because even Carney, the dancing judge was Carney gets into a public confrontation with general Smedley Darlington Butler, at which it's revealed that judge Carney himself has boozy parties at his house. And he tells Butler, don't you, you, you come in my house. We'll shoot you. You can't take my booze away in my house. That's my house. So playing both sides is not, not uncommon at that point. I think the main motivator in having Philadelphia cleaned up at all was embarrassment of how it was perceived in the national press. So in general, what Philadelphia had been called in a famous expose by Lincoln Steffens in 1903, corrupt but contented, persisted all through prohibition. Corrupt but contented. You could get booze anywhere, and it was said that there were more bars in Philly during prohibition than there are now. So there's a, here's a kid who's known from baseball, who's in the middle of all of this. What what worlds would a man want to be in back then, but the worlds of booze, gangsters, dames, baseball, and the fights? Pretty good life. All right, so I'm going to let our our, uh, audience uh, uh, run, uh, not walk, to get this book to sort of hear sort sort of how all of this ends, or maybe, frankly, doesn't really end, because I think it's also... Uh, the trials that come out of this and and, and uh, whether they were show or whether they were earnest or or somewhere in between, you know, I, I think it feels to me like they were indicative of, uh, you know, the late 20s, the it's been almost a decade of prohibition. Obviously, pro- prohibition is is uh, 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 revised or, or goes away in around 1933, I think it was 33 to Volstead. Yeah, I, so I'm guessing I'm guessing that these trials. I don't. It was so much time to go into the details of it, but th- this is also sort of Philadelphia, if you will, on uh, if you will on in the spotlight, uh, and not and probably not in a in a positive in a positive way. Um, his murder uh, and is just indicative of of what I think people are nationally starting to try to kind of circle around is is Philadelphia held as an example of what's not going right in all of this? Well, it depends. Held When you say held as an example, it depends held by whom? By the New York Times, I guess, right. so, by, by right. Colliers and Harpers and the Atlantic. Yeah, I guess so, by the, by the self-righteous 
media establishment of the time. I, I think it's they have to find some city that's the worst. If you're going to assign a reporter, hey, we're going to do a story on the city that has thumbed its nose most enthusiastically at Prohibition. Where should you go? go oh, oh, we'll go to Philly, Chief. We'll go to Philly. Well, there were only 25 murders in Philadelphia through this gangland warfare period. And now that, again, not to offend anyone, that's that's uh, that's just one month in Chicago now, right? 25 killings. Or in Philadelphia or in Detroit or Baltimore. Um, it is not a wave of savage machine gunning on every street corner every night. But McClune's killing and its aftermath and the killings that followed it and the nature of whether he was killed on purpose or by accident and who were the targets, those trials devolve into absolute comic circus. The 14-year-old runaway bride, the decoy girl, the inmates of certain establishments of pleasure. Um, the story was written, I, I can't vouch for whether it was true, I wasn't at that particular brothel on that evening, but that Huey would frequent a certain establishment that was Babe Ruth's favorite establishment when he was in town to play the athletics. And he approached a young woman who, let's say, worked there for her favors. This is what was written at the time, that Huey approached a young woman in a house of ill repute looking for the same services she would provide to, to the Bambino, and she made fun of his hump, and he hit her. And that started a cycle of her telling her boyfriend, her boyfriend telling his friends, and it ends with 25 shotgun shells in Huey's little body and 25 cents found in his pocket at 2 o'clock in the morning one night in 1928. So, he uh, did he have it coming? I don't know. No more or less than anyone else. It was certainly portrayed that it was an accident, that he was tough luck. Yet there was a warrant out for Huey's arrest, supposedly, and his place was raided, at least theatrically, a couple of times, and they found beer of more than 3% alcohol in the back room. And they found some of Boo Boo Hoff's whiskey, which is basically, I think, turpentine flavor with maple syrup. Found some bottles of that under the counter, and there was that public show. You know, Casablanca? I can't believe there's gambling going on here. You're winning, sir. So there was certainly that going on. Uh, they had to make a show of cracking down on speakeasies and, and legal, legal booze, and eventually they had to make a show of cracking down on these two dozen gangland slayings, but I think in general, it was for show. Uh, no one is convicted of killing McClune, even though the gunmen are well-known. They're all brought to trial, and they all dance away. And for years, it's brought up what really happened. One of the killers of McClune then is murdered himself a few days later, in bed with a 16-year-old, quote, decoy girl. One of the probable trigger men winds up being interrogated by Robert F. Kennedy and the Jimmy Hoffa Mafia control of the Teamsters Union trials 30 years later. Uh, they all have very splendid careers on the wrong side of the law. And poor Huey gets caught in all of this. And if you go to... Holy Cross Cemetery in the southern suburbs of Philadelphia, you'll find a tombstone that says Hugh McClune, former mascot of athletics. It all started with baseball. It really all started with a fall from the seesaw that made him the luckiest boy in the country.
Yeah, and and and, and interesting that that's the well the epitaph, right? To 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 have him remembered as right because it, it it's it certainly whitewashes a lot of what he evolved to after. All right, so let me. Um, here's the last question then. So this is, um, and then I'll let you promote. Okay, the uh, this truly has so many different sort of twists and turns. Uh, you can see the melodrama uh, in between uh, your recountings and, and the words implied there. Um, I have to think that this is uh, a conversation. Maybe the book needs to be more fully out for it to be in this realm. But but what of a movie or a documentary or other forms besides the book, or is the book the first thing to kind of get this out there? Because th- to your point, right, this is rich in lots of different themes and and tributaries uh, as a story. Well, it is Field of Dreams meets Boardwalk Empire. I guess that's what it is. Um, but I don't mean to imply anywhere. Uh, this is documented fact. Every page is 30 pages of sourcing. Uh, It's, at least to me, a work of journalism, if not just a work of rehashing old newspapers. But I'm not trying to imply anything. Everything on every page actually happened or was reported as to have happened, uh, which may or may not be exactly the same thing when you've got 10 competing newspapers. But there was such a young man. He inhabited all these different worlds of organized crime and law enforcement, of baseball and boxing, of the streets, of the churches, of poverty, of fame. He really existed. Uh, This confluence of superstition, the way that little people are seen, and the word mascot entering the language, this confluence benefits him, I guess. Otherwise, he's just another crippled kid, which is... A cruel thing to say, but without baseball, without the predecessor hunchbacks, without this fantastical belief in the lucky charm attributes of little people, little kids, unlucky little kids by any other standard, he doesn't happen. But he does happen, and then prohibition happens, and he gets swept up in that. Remember, he survives the Spanish flu. He survives the polio epidemic of 1916 that kills so many of other 14-year-olds. He survives tremendous street violence and strikes and the trolley car strikes and the garment workers' strikes in which there's so many people killed in the streets. He lives through all of this. We all live through many periods in history, but not all of us take part in all of it. And he was in all of these worlds. And then he died before he was 32 miles from where he was born. And the trainload of people came down from Broadway to go to his funeral. Who was this kid? Who was this young man who dared one night to be seen as more than a freak, to be seen as a 26-year-old man with the normal appetites of a man, and who paid for it apparently with his life? So it's a heck of a... I'm not going to say it's a heck of a book, but I will say it's a heck of a life. And a heck of a story, and how it's portrayed, uh, perhaps if the book gains any attention at all, which I'm not saying it will or saying... It won't. That's far from my my field of endeavor. Uh, well, we're, we're cert- attention, sure. We're um, cer- we're certainly going to try. So, uh, tell us, uh, give us the uh, 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 give us some promotional stuff. What else are you going to do with it to promote it now that it's available? Uh, including this imprint, right? You you mentioned earlier this is a new imprint uh, that the the book is in. 
Well, the publishers uh, called Sutherland House, Sutherland House, because that's the street that the publisher lives on. The book is called The Short Life of Huey McClune. The Short Life of Huey McClune, a true story, underline true, a true story of baseball magic and murder. The Short Life of Huey McClune, a true story of baseball magic and murder, available online as far as I can tell. It is a true story, 100% of a remarkable young man's life in an uproarious time with a devastating ending. And is it cinematic? I, I can't imagine a life that could be more cinematic than he lived. All right. Uh, our thanks to Alan. The book, again, is called The Short Life of Huey McClune, a true story. And you heard all how true this is in the most bizarre of ways. A true story of baseball, magic, and murder. Uh, it is uh, published by Sutherland House. Uh, it is available as of this moment. Uh, wherever fine books are found, obviously you can find uh, a convenient link to Amazon on our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 211 with Alan Abel and you will find a convenient link to the book. Uh, we will get a few shekels of referral love uh, for your doing so. And th this is just, uh, this is, you've got, you must get this book because it's fascinating. It is a story that is, uh, it's got to be a movie uh, at some point, I guarantee. Uh, and if you consider yourself a, a sports fan, a baseball fan, Philadelphia Athletics fan, uh, a history buff, any of those things or all of those things. Uh, this uh, is the book for you. It's um, it's a fascinating tale. And, you know, you heard Alan describe it. It's kind of like Field of Dreams meets Boardwalk Empire and everything in between. And, and as uh, uh, the great writer Michael Farber uh, says on the front cover of this book, this could be a great work of fiction. The damnedest thing is it's all fact. And, um, it's great stuff. We appreciate Alan for uh, uh, taking time to uh, walk us through all of this and, and uh, so much more to uh, to learn uh, by uh, getting the book for yourself uh, and enjoying. Um, let's see. Uh, besides getting the book, we, uh, of course, want to thank you uh, for checking out all of other great stuff at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. That's where all of our episodes uh, that we have done in the past and will do in the future uh, are located conveniently. There's a nice search box there. It's pretty robust. Uh, you can search about just anything you want, and uh, you'll see all the topics and people that we've uh, talked to to date. Of course, um, we want you to subscribe uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hell, uh, send them to your friends, uh, recommend them uh, to uh, visit and uh, listen themselves. Hopefully get a little hooked like you guys have become uh, to this show. Uh, and, um, uh, of course, uh, rating and reviewing us uh, in the most positive of manners, of course. Uh, wherever you can do so, that helps our algorithms and get out to more people out there who just might enjoy the proceedings, uh, as hopefully uh, you all do. Uh, again, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com uh, is also the place where you can find all of our social media links. You can follow us on Instagram at GoodSeatStillAvailable. Uh, it's all one word. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at GoodSeatStill. Uh, we're on Facebook as well. There's a page devoted to us there. Uh, let's see what else you can uh, send us an email by all means, please do that 
How about uh, the address, which is hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we also have an, e- uh, an email newsletter that we send out each and every week over the weekends, usually. Uh, that kind of gives you a little early tip sheet into what next week's episode is going to be. You can find a link to that and subscribe to that uh, off of the website. I'm not sure what tab it's on, but uh, just to poke around, you'll find it. And uh, our thanks, of course, to our uh, our pal, the, the 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 man, the legend, the myth, uh, the le- whatever he is. He does it great. He does a uh, wonderful job for us each and every week. You know him. You love him. You can't live without him. The great Dr. Jerry Payne. Thank you, kind sir. Uh, for all of your editing uh, capabilities this week. And thank you, the great listeners out there, uh, for uh, sticking around and uh, hopefully enjoying the proceedings this week. See you next week. Uh, Take care. Stay healthy. Get your shots. Do whatever you need to do. And uh, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.